In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome back to the Bravo Docket. We are now in the second part of our series on Jen Shaw's sentencing. If you haven't listened to the first part, we highly recommend you go back and listen to that one to learn what Jen Shaw did and what has happened in her case leading up to sentencing. So now we are discussing, now that Jen has pled guilty, what happens next? And so when a person pleads guilty, they're not guaranteed what the sentence will be. The district judge is going to take factors into account and determine what the appropriate sentence should be. After a plea or a guilty verdict, here it was a plea, not a guilty verdict. The guilty verdict would have come about had Jen Shaw gone to trial, but this was a plea. We don't know if there would have been a guilty verdict. I'm just saying a guilty verdict comes after a trial. But here she pled guilty. So then the Federal Department of Probation issues a report about the defendant and the crime. They have the opportunity to comment on the report and inform the judge about anything relevant to the sentencing. Here, the government and Jen stipulated to a guidelines offense level of 33, but there was still a PSR, which is a pre-sentencing report, recommending a specific sentence. And we'll discuss that as we go through both memorandums. But it's still up to the judge considering certain factors as to whether or not they want to deviate from the recommended sentence or the sentence that was within the plea. And so this is where we're at now. Both sides have submitted sentencing memorandums. Genshaw submitted hers first, and then the government submitted theirs more recently. And we have them both, and they are both jam-packed with things. Of course, the government or the prosecutions is more jam-packed. I think it's pretty interesting to read through that one and go through the exhibits on that one. But they are both just jam-packed, and they're both trying to say what sentence Jen should receive and why. So we're going to go through it all. I'm going to be representing Jen on this, hypothetically acting as her attorney and reading her attorney's arguments. And Angela will be stepping in as the prosecution and reading the prosecution's sentencing memorandum. And before we dive in, I just want to say Jen is requesting a sentence of 36 months. And the government, the prosecution here, is requesting 120 months. And we'll discuss why. Anything to add before we dive in. No, that was an excellent summary. 
Thank you. I feel like I was like speed reading through it. No, it was great. And again, guys, I still am recovering from COVID and my voice is still screwy in addition to my standard asthma struggles. So I apologize for any weird voice stuff. And it's also the holidays. So we're both, I think, in a weird funk of lack of sleep and work and holidays and happy spirits. We're going to get through it. <laughs> you know how most people in most jobs, right before Christmas and then between Christmas and New Year's, there's kind of like a lull where you don't mm-hmm. do things? Big law lawyers don't get that. We don't get that. We don't have a lull. <laughs> it's still, everything's still going. Stuff is still due. We don't get breaks. We're still billing hours. So we don't have the 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 nice lull that most no people have. I do mentally, though. Mentally, I'm just laying in bed, but... <laughs> All right. So there's going to be a lot of reading in this, but it's all very interesting. We're going to be kind of talking a lot. Uh, Yeah, but I will begin. So, oh, but before we begin, I wanted to point something out because I was like, why are these so short? And they're submitting a lot of exhibits. And it's because in this district, there's a page limit of 25 pages. So I'm sure had they both been given more pages, they would have gone wild. And I think that's why the government might, might have put so many exhibits and didn't, I don't know, I was expecting to see a lot more argument on both their sides. It, it was limited to 25 pages. So, yeah, and there's a lot of opinion. stuff in Jen's that's redacted that we can't see even within those 25 pages. And then, um, so I want to say, like, Ceci taking on the arguments of the government, there is, it's Jen. not exactly fair because she doesn't know all the things they argued because they blacked out a lot of it. Jen, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so, and I, I will give my what I think the redacted sections say, but that's all hypothetical. Anyway, so first there's an introduction. And in the intro, they point to how there were many people involved in the businesses at issue here. And Jen was one of many and how she was involved in the legitimate and fraudulent sides of the business. As an aside, not all lead generation is illegal. Most is legal. But lead generation can it can can kind of cross the line and we've talked about it a lot how what Jen did was illegal. They also argue she never spoke to the victims. They say she didn't create the scheme and she's just one of the many players. She's not the mastermind. They state in the introduction and this is a preview of what is to come that her situation differs from her co-defendants, many whom have already been sentenced as it relates to her religion, race, gender and culture. They note that the highest sentence was 87 months, and that's one of her co-defendants. They call the other co-defendants career criminals and professional fraudsters who hopped from fraud to fraud. They claim that Jen started on the legitimate side of telemarketing and was pursued by those fraudsters because they recognized her skills in telemarketing. But it also acknowledges that at some point Jen realized what she was doing was illegal, which led to her guilty plea and profound remorse. They claim that she left the business well before her arrest and launched a fashion line and became a real housewife, thereby, quote, permanently breaking from the shadowy world of telemarketing fraud. On Housewives, they claim it was beneficial because she was under the spotlight and the scrutiny of cameras for three years. Yet they also argue, and I'm going to read this part because This is the housewives mentioned that we were all waiting for in these memorandums. They argue, quote, in perfect homage to, quote, reality television, which in actuality is a semi-scripted, heavily edited facsimile of reality, intentionally manipulated to maximize ratings. Episodes of the 
R-H-O-S-L-C, have been filmed and aired during the pendency of Ms. Shaw's case, which misleadingly suggest that Ms. Shaw's statements and actions in these episodes match the posture of Ms. Shaw's case or reflect her accurate sentiments about this matter, worse due to editing, scripting, and the network's complete control over the, quote, storyline on the RHOSLC. As her sentencing date approaches, Ms. Shaw has been made to seem intransigent, defiant, and often even unrepentant about her actions here. Nothing could be further from the truth. Just as Jen Shaw has never been a, quote, housewife, little else is real about her persona and caricature as portrayed by the editors of RHOSLC. The effigy of Jen Shaw, portrayed in RHOSLC, has no bearing on who she is whatsoever and should not enter this court's calculus in fashioning an appropriate sentence for the real Jen Shaw. So this is their argument saying the court shouldn't even consider anything that she's doing on Salt Lake City into their sentencing. Oh, and feel free to jump in. <laughs> I wanted to jump in there and say that the prosecution, as Sessie pointed out, the prosecution has the advantage of reading Jen's memorandum first, and then they have time to respond. And so they're able to see the arguments that she's making and then respond to those arguments. I think Jen's attorneys were anticipating that the government would use her actions on Real Housewives as evidence in the sentencing, and the government didn't. They had some exhibits that were screenshots of some of the luxuries that she displayed on the show, but then they tied those two specific receipts that were from accounts that came specifically from the proceeds of the fraud. At the very end, we're going to read text messages between Jen and Stuart Smith and some of the other co-conspirators, and those text messages really demonstrate Jen's state of mind as she was committing the crime that she pled guilty to. I think people that watch Salt Lake City are going to agree that she comes across very similar in those text messages to how she appears on the show. But the government doesn't point that out. That's kind of subtext, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it does seem like they were anticipating an argument by the prosecution about her on Real Housewives, but they didn't touch it. And Jen's argument seems to be that it's just a made up storyline character and it's all editing. That's kind of the extent of the SLC stuff. Moving on, they also argue the Jekyll and Hyde defense. And I feel like everyone kind of was talking about this on social media when this memorandum came out. They say, yes, there is a Jen who committed these crimes, but there's also a Jen who is known by her family and friends as a devoted friend and mother. And the Jen who committed the crimes was cultivated in New York, where she would, quote, spend time with a group of deadbeat criminals and fraudsters. And then in Salt Lake City, she, quote, was the devoted mother, daughter, sister, wife, and friend. They state, how do you reconcile this? And then it gets redacted. And I'm wondering if there's a discussion maybe of a particular individual who she was involved with. I'm speculating. I, I don't know what they're trying to get at here, like why, what what the hook was to get her into this New York fraudster lifestyle. I don't know. I don't know. It's It's completely redacted. We don't know. I think maybe she got swept up with something, some lifestyle. It's an educated guess. So don't take my word for it. They acknowledge that she didn't plead guilty right away. They address it. And they say that Ms. Shaw's failure to plead guilty early on in the investigation is not a reflection on her lack of remorse. Rather, it reflects the enormous shame and guilt she feels and the difficulty she has endured in admitting to all those who love and admire her that she had committed this crime. However, Ms. Shaw has now been able to face her actions 
admit her guilt, and begin the process of healing for herself, her family, and most importantly, for the victims of this fraud. Jumping in so, there real quick. Yeah. One of the reasons why Ceci and I spent so much time reading Ryan Holt's sentencing transcript is because we wanted you guys as the legal team and our listeners to be able to hear the contrast and hear the differences in styles in between and eventually be able to compare the sentence that Ryan Holt gets compared to the sentence that Jen Shaw gets. Ryan Holt capitulated very early. He sold out all of his co-conspirators very early. He turned himself in after his businesses got raided. We read you that transcript. And I just think about that as Jen's making her arguments here. One of the most common questions that we've received is why did Jen wait so long? And I think this gives an answer. Of course, it's from Jen's perspective and Jen as counsel's perspective. And it's that she was kind of reflecting and she didn't want to come out as this criminal to her friends and family and let them down. So just something to think about. I don't know what the answer is, but that's what they say the answer is. So then it goes into her personal history. And I think this is where sort of deviates from what we read with the Chrisleys. I don't feel like we got this full picture when we read the Chrisleys sentencing memorandums. I felt like theirs was more like, we didn't do it, like pointing fingers. And this one kind of seems to paint a better picture of who Jen is. No, the Chrisleys 100% were, we didn't do it. In the face of overwhelming evidence and a guilty verdict, a unanimous guilty verdict to the contrary. So their sentencing memorandums couldn't really, because they were taking that posture, they couldn't be like, well, they did this because of this, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. So. Yeah. So it discusses her Polynesian background and how she was born into a Mormon family living in Utah. She was raised by her grandmother in Hawaii, which I guess, and it says, is common in Polynesian culture. She moved back to Utah when she was five, which she claimed was jarring. She said there weren't many people of color in Utah. She was also the firstborn of six, and that meant that in her culture, she had to take on a big role as the, quote, Fahu. This is another quote from one of the letters submitted on her behalf, and it says, As the Fahu, Jen is accorded the highest respect at all formal and informal occasions, from funerals to weddings and births. She acts as the family matriarch and oversees her siblings, nieces, and nephews. Thus, Jen holds the position of being the caretaker who is responsible for the family. She has lived this esteemed role and accepts the responsibility and has exemplified this role throughout her life. It states her parents were very strict with raising her, and she had the, of course, like I just said, added responsibility of being the Fahu. They discuss her parents' and siblings' successful careers, which I just want to note, I wish we would have seen more of this side of Jen on the show, more of her family. I mean, maybe her family didn't want to be on the show, but more of this, like, I guess we probably couldn't because she was in the middle of this scheme, of this fraudulent scheme, but maybe more of of her family and that side of her. Her counsel acknowledges in the memorandum that usually the success of parents and siblings aren't relevant, but it is here where Jen was living in a weird, hostile environment, which was unwelcoming to people of color and as a Fahu, and how she had responsibility over her siblings. They wanted to point that, like, she led them so well and cared for them so well, even despite being in this climate of Salt Lake City. And they still went on to do great things and have great careers. Wait, so she moved back to Utah when she was five? So has she lived in Utah since she was five? Yes. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, I thought from her talking on the show that she didn't 
moved to Salt Lake City until she was older or something, or at least maybe a teenager. I, I was confused about that. So then it discusses that Jen attended the University of Utah and she wanted to be a lawyer. She met Sharif while at the university and they fell in love nearly instantly, but her family didn't approve of the relationship. She learned from that experience with her family that Mormons didn't fully accept African-Americans as converts and was devastated that her family held such racist views against others. She says she got pregnant with her first son and her father disowned her. She had Sharif Jr. and then married Sharif Sr. and converted to Islam. This all happened when she was a sophomore in college, which I didn't realize she was that young when she married Sharif. She tried to maintain her education but had to drop out after Sharif Sr. had a career-ending injury in football and decided himself to attend law school. She worked three jobs while he attended law school and cared for their son. The picture that they painted here And again, I'm summarizing because this is 25 pages. The picture that they painted here is that she never wanted to let her family down, and she tried her best to work hard. It says that she began working in the telemarketing industry in 2009 and had no reason to believe that it was not legitimate. Which, side note there, just jumping in real quick, telemarketing is fine as long, I mean, we all hate it, I think, but it's fine as long as what you're selling actually exists and is a real thing, and you're not lying about what you're selling, that's where the fraud comes in. Nothing they were selling had any value. And it was just a way to get people to give their credit card numbers and to get them started on a path to giving up their life savings for nothing. They got nothing in return. It's the same way that lead generation isn't technically illegal, but it is if you are selling leads knowing that people are going to get scammed. Yeah. So... So then it goes on to discuss her family, and it discusses her devotion to her children. There is a portion that is redacted, and I think that discusses the minor child. I forget his name, but her second child, her second son, because he is a minor. So here's a quote from this section. It says, And despite this solitary, painful struggle, Jen has been extremely involved in the lives of her sons. As her husband noted in his letter, Jen instilled in her sons the importance of education and encouraged them to strive to do their absolute best. From the time they were in elementary school through high school, Jen helped her sons prepare for spelling bees, science fairs, debate tournaments, and public speaking competitions. Sharif relayed a story about how Jen went the extra mile to help Sharif Jr. compete in a science fair in the sixth grade. He did not win that fair, but today he is a first-year student at Duke Medical School, and his parents were recently able to attend his white coat ceremony. Blank, and this is the younger son, who is a senior in high school, is a talented athlete and was recently offered a football scholarship to Morgan State University. Jen is Blank's rock and comfort. When the police came to arrest Jen in the instant case, the agents found 15-year-old Blank in bed and pointed an assault rifle at his head and heart. Blank was forced out of bed at gunpoint and escorted out of his home in handcuffs. He still is having nightmares from this incident, and it is only his mother who is able to calm him and help him go back to sleep. This is part of the tremendous guilt and shame Jen feels as her actions have harmed her family in many ways. And I just want to note there, because when we initially posted a summary about this memorandum, I mentioned how it talks about how her younger son was traumatized from the arrest incident. And people were like, well, it is her fault. It wouldn't have happened had she not committed the crime. And that's true. And she does acknowledge that in the memorandum. So wanted to flag that. 
So it goes on to summarize how she's helped her close and extended families, as well as friends, which is more specifically detailed in the letters submitted on her behalf. So she has many, many letters, and I'll talk about them at the end. This portion is heavily redacted, but it states that there was some financial pressure caused by something. It also states she was heavily impacted by her father's death. It's again redacted, but it says something, and it says her I'm assuming it's this thing caused her exercising increasingly poor judgment about the people with whom she was involved in the telemarketing business and the business practices in which she was engaged. This is now more arguments on the the two Jen Shahs or the Jekyll and Hyde. And again, this section is probably the most heavily redacted in all of her memorandums, and it's about what happened in New York. It says the portrait of Jen Shah that emerges from the history of her family and the descriptions of her character by her family and friends make it hard to understand why she now stands before this court, having pled guilty to a serious and long-lasting fraud that victimized many innocent persons. The answer to this question can be found in understanding both Jen's past and upbringing, which has been outlined above, then it's redacted, and then it says the short answer is that there were two Jens. And I think the reason they have to do this is because they they can't paint her as this warm, caring person while she's also pled guilty to these horrific crimes. So I think her counsel had to come up with something, some reason why she got involved in this scheme. How can someone be defrauding elderly who are just helpless, but then also be a kind and caring mother? Her counsel didn't have a lot to work with here. So I think they were doing what they could do with the facts. It says one was the perfect daughter, Fahu, mother and wife in Salt Lake City. Then there was the other Jenshaw, and this is all redacted. This Jenshaw threw caution and morals to the wind as she spent more and more personal and professional time with a group of unsavory fraudsters while living in New York, a world separated both geographically and emotionally from her life in Salt Lake City. There is no fine line that can be drawn between these two people and places, but the demarcation is significant. At the outset, it must be emphasized that when Jen originally began to work in the telemarketing industry, she was involved in a legitimate business. This is not a person who sought out illegal activity from the beginning, like a drug dealer. It is more the story of a person who gradually over time got sucked into fraudulent activity and then became slowly more involved. Can I just defend drug dealers for one second? (laughs) Sure. Go for it. (laughs) Just here's my problem with that analogy. A drug dealer can be selling something that's illegal, but that actually exists. For example, if you are selling (laughs) drugs, you're at least getting what you paid for. In most instances. Anyway, so it says this offense conduct is the direct opposite of Ms. Shaw has been during most of her life and the person she is to her family and friends. Ms. Shaw has clearly acknowledged her guilt and is very remorseful for the hurt and damage she has caused innocent victims. Yet pleading guilty and acknowledging her guilt before her family, friends, and all the world has been extremely difficult for Ms. Shaw. Jen has always felt she must be perfect, the perfect daughter and family member, the perfect wife. The shame she feels from this offense is quite literally unbearable. And although she knows she committed a serious crime that hurt many people, it is psychologically extremely difficult for her to face her family and friends. Thus, while she sometimes seems to be denying the guilt in public, in private, And then this is redacted. So that was just the background and we're getting to the legal arguments. So Jen Shaw agreed to a calculation of 135 to 168 months in her plea agreement. 
And this is the math that we mentioned in the last episode where they started off with a base offense and then added points for different things. Here, the amount of money involved increased the base by a lot to a level 33. And that is how they got the range of 135 to 168 months in prison. But this doesn't take into account her characteristic factors that we will get into, like deterrence. Recall in our Chrisley episode, we mentioned that there was a pre-sentencing report, which is the PSR. Here there was a PSR, and they recommended a sentence of 72 months. And so Genshaw starts by pointing out, hey, the PSR recommended 72 months, and that's lower than the amount that I agreed to of 135 to 168. So, you know, the PSR already deviated, made a downward departure. We should continue making a downward departure to 36 months. And so Jen is arguing that the PSR did 72 months, which is lower than what I agreed to, and still hasn't considered all these characteristic factors that I'm going to get into and argue. Plus, there's also COVID. That's another reason that I shouldn't get this long sentence. It should be reduced. And she goes into those factors. The government points out the advisory guidelines range and says Jen Shaw was convicted following a guilty plea of participating in a conspiracy to commit wire fraud in connection with the conduct of telemarketing. Consistent with the stipulated guidelines range set forth in the plea agreement, the probation office has calculated. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Legal team. Have you guys been on Quince's website recently? I shopped on there like three years ago for the first time and bought myself a bunch of cashmere sweaters. I lived in the black cashmere sweater, lived in it. And I hadn't shopped on there for a while because my cashmere sweaters lasted for a really long time. But I decided to go back on there and oh my gosh, have they completely expanded everything that they offer. The workwear, they have washable silk. And I mean, it's so affordable. I also shared with you all that I'm recently engaged and I'm in the middle of wedding planning. So anytime I'm shopping, I'm thinking about wedding, 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 wedding. And they have everything I need for the wedding. I just booked my honeymoon. We're going to go to Southeast Asia. It's going to be hot there. And I've been looking for good linen pieces. Guess what? Quince has good linen pieces and they start at only $30. Then I'm like, okay, we need to get our wedding bands. You know who has fine jewelry now? 14 karat gold. Quince. 
So I send the link to Avery and I'm like, you have to get your wedding band from here. It's affordable and it looks just like any other wedding band. I mean, it looks great. Another thing I'm doing, again, I have wedding on the brain. I want to look my best. So I'm like, okay, I really want cute little matching sets to go work out in. It's the only way I can get motivated. I have to like wear a cute little matching set. I've gotten really into Pilates and guess what? Quince has the matching sets. They look identical to matching sets I've already purchased from another sports brand. They have the same thing and at a fraction of the cost. I was able to get two tops and one pair of pants for the same price that I could only get one set at this other sportswear place. I mean, come on. Quince is just killing it. If you've shopped there before, it's time to go back on again. They have just completely expanded the categories of goods that they have to offer. They're not just all about cashmere sweaters anymore. They have got a ton of stuff, and I highly recommend you go check it out. If you're ready to go try out Quince, go to quince.com slash docket to get free shipping and 365-day returns. That is q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash docket to get free shipping and 365-day returns. That is an amazing guarantee on their goods. So go check it out. I highly recommend it, guys. The defendant has an advisory guidelines range of 135 to 168 months imprisonment. So they agree on that range. Yeah. Yeah, because it was plea. So her counsel points out first that the factor of 18 points was applied because of the monetary amount involved. And her counsel is saying that's a lot of points to add. And that should be taken into consideration. And they use this case involving an individual named Gupta, who was a defendant. They argue that the defendant there similarly got 18 points tacked on, quote, for the resultant but unpredictable monetary gains made by others, from which Mr. Gupta did not in any direct sense receive one penny. So they're trying to make an argument here that Chen Shaw's case is similar to Mr. Gupta's, in which they're saying she didn't receive one penny, I guess. Also, a side note, Judge Rakoff presided over the Gupta case, and Judge Rakoff is the judge in this case. It's kind of risky when you make an argument using a case that a judge has presided over. You have to make sure you're getting it really right because that judge is familiar with the case that they presided over. Yeah. So they argue... They say, as Judge Rakoff profoundly noted while sentencing Mr. Gupta, quote, the numbers assigned by the Sentencing Commission to various sentencing factors appear to be more the product of speculation, whim, or abstract number crunching than any rigorous methodology, thus maximizing the risk of injustice. And they say, nowhere is this truer than the sentencing guidelines' oversized treatment of loss amount. So just to summarize, they're saying, again, that loss amount is such a big portion of this 33 calculation. It was 18 points that they should probably reconsider that. As Ceci and I have talked about before, one of the main skills that we have to have is distinguishing cases. The government does an excellent job distinguishing the Rajat Gupta case here. They point out that Judge Shah suggests that the fraud guidelines are somehow unfairly harsh as applied to this case. And as Jen Shah's only comparator, she picks a case that is nothing like this one. Rajat Gupta was convicted of insider trading, a crime nothing like the defendant's crime. While Gupta's loss amount was calculated using the gain to a hedge fund manager who traded on Gupta's inside information, the loss amount in this case was calculated by totaling money defrauded from victims by Jen Shah and those reporting to her. The loss amount in this case is not some legal fiction. It represents hard-earned money stolen from the victims with false promises. Not captured by the guidelines calculation, of course, is the overwhelming mental, emotional, and sometimes physical pain inflicted on the victims through the fraud. In addition, 
Gupta did not in any direct sense receive one penny. And that's a quote from the case. And I'm assuming that's a quote from the order Mm -hmm. that this judge made. So put simply, the Gupta case offers no insight on the value of the guidelines in this case, which, if anything, understate the true harm that Genshaw caused. And that, legal team, is how you distinguish a case. The government does an excellent job there. Yeah. So just to reiterate the argument there in normal people words is that she's saying, hey, Tina's a really big number when you're considering that, you know, I didn't really get that much money. And the government's like, dude, you got a lot of money from this scheme. Of course, the judge should consider that 18 point portion that is specific to the monetary gain. All right. So then going into the rest of the factors. So the argument that Jen Shaw's counsel is making is that the factors all demonstrate that a sentence well below the guidelines range is sufficient, but not greater than necessary to achieve the goals of sentencing. This is set by statute, and it says the goals are, quote, to reflect, and this is also in her memorandum, it says, to reflect the seriousness of the offense, to promote respect for the law, and to provide just punishment for the offense, to afford adequate deterrence to criminal conduct, to protect the public from further crimes of the defendant, to provide the defendant with needed educational or vocational training, medical care, or other correctional treatment in the most effective manner. In addition to considering each of these purposes, the court also shall consider the nature and circumstances of the offense and the history and characteristics of the defendant, the kinds of sentences available, the kinds of sentence and the sentencing range established under the applicable sentencing guidelines. So this is what I was talking about before. These are the characteristic factors. So neither Jen's plea range nor the recommendation in the PSR consider these factors, which is why the sentence can be adjusted either higher or lower. And Jen is arguing it should be lower. So she argues that the other co-defendants received sentences much lower than what was recommended she should as well. Plus, those who received more than 36 months are distinguishable from Jen. She argues many of those co-defendants in this case had direct contact with the victims of the fraud. She says whether as the salespeople using fake names or as managers or owners of sales floors whose job it was to convince the client not to do chargeback their worthless products, Ms. Shaw notably never spoke with any of those customers of MPG or anyone who actually purchased these products. Several co-defendants were barred by the FTC and simply reincarnated their dismantled fraudulent enterprise under a new name. This is not true of Ms. Shaw. Fourth, many of Ms. Shaw's co-defendants have prior criminal histories, whereas Ms. Shaw does not. And fifth, we dispute the government's ranking of Ms. Shaw as Tier A in this conspiracy. While it is true that Ms. Shaw provided the leads to many of the people involved in the crime, she certainly did not create, organize, control, or run this multi-pronged, multi-state conspiracy. Proof of this are the facts that many of these co-defendants neither received their leads from Ms. Shaw, had any contact with her, nor even knew her. Many of these co-defendants who did know Ms. Shaw complained that she controlled who received leads. And when Ms. Shaw did not give them her leads, they were still able to carry out their crimes. The myriad telemarketing frauds involved in this conspiracy, though different in the various iterations regarding what product was being sold, required not just leads but also marketing, a sales floor, and a fulfillment center. Thus, Ms. Shaw's piece of the puzzle, though important, was not enough to carry out this fraud without these other crucial pieces controlled and directed by experienced criminals who were not Ms. Shaw. There is neither reason nor evidence to place Ms. Shaw at the godfather or kingpin level of this fraud. This fraud started before her, often carried on without her involvement. So 
to distill that, she's just arguing all these other co-defendants got less than what the PSR is arguing for. So I should get less too. And I wasn't even that much involved. Another argument she makes is that any sentence she should get should avoid disparities between other defendants in other fraud cases. And she points to some statistics here and says the national average sentence in 2019 for fraud cases was 21 months. And in the SDNY, it was only 19 months. The median sentences in both were 12 months. Significantly, 54.2% of fraud cases in the Second Circuit, which is Southern District of New York is in the Second Circuit, received a variance from the guidelines at sentencing, and only 26.2% of fraud cases in the Second Circuit received a guideline sentence. And it goes on to state some additional facts and statistics. So that's a more statistical argument on why she should get a lower sentence. The next argument that she makes is that she deserves leniency because of her devotion to her husband and sons. And again, here they use another one of Judge Rakoff, so the judge presiding over this case, one of his cases. And it says, one of the first factors identified for consideration under the statute is, quote, the history and characteristics of the defendant. As recognized by Judge Rakoff in United States v. Adelson, surely if ever a man is to receive credit for the good he has done and his immediate misconduct assessed in the context of his overall life hitherto, it should be at the moment of his sentencing when his very future hangs in the balance. This elementary principle of weighing the good with the bad, which is basic to all the great religions, moral philosophies, and systems of justice, was plainly part of what Congress had in mind when it directed courts to consider as a necessary sentencing factor the history and characteristics of the defendant. And it says this court is tasked with essentially reaching its long arm through time into the past to punish the Jen Shaw of 2016 and 2018. And here's where they make the argument. Actually, they don't really make an argument. This is the only reference that they make in the entire sentencing memorandum to Jen being involved only from 2016 to 2018. I did a search throughout the memorandum for 2018. This is the only time it's mentioned, but it is pretty significant to her argument. So she's basically arguing that the only Jen Shaw that should be critiqued here is the Jen Shaw from 2016 to 2018 because her counsel is arguing that's when she was involved in the scheme. As Angela will point out, that's not true. There's evidence that shows she was involved in the scheme for a longer period than that up to her arrest. So they say only 2023 Jen stands before this court to be sentenced. This is a 49-year-old mother of two sons, 28 and 17 years old, who are the center of her life. She's only 49 and has so much more to offer the world. Her family is her priority. They later also argue that the court should consider the burden that this will place on her family. So the first argument is how devoted she is to her her family and that characteristic and how she's a devoted mother. This flips it to the children and say how burdened they will be by her not being around if she's sentenced to a long criminal sentence. And they argue Judge Kaplan recently imposed a sentence well below the guidelines range on an insider trading defendant who was convicted after trial based upon the burden that lengthy incarceration would impose on his wife and child. And this is in the case United States v. Blazizak. And here the judge states the wreckage that a long period of incarceration would wreak on her, so the child here, and on your or the wife, and on your son is horrifying to me. And the sentence I am going to impose on you is going to reflect that. It says, while Jen's family circumstances do not rise to the standard of, quote, extraordinary, as is traditionally understood, the court can consider them nonetheless in varying from the guidelines. 
there can be no doubt that Jen's prolonged absence will impose an enormous burden on her husband and children. Blank, Jen's younger son, will graduate high school without his beloved mother in attendance, cheering him on. He will pack his belongings and move into his first college dorm without Jen's doting motherly help or her famously two large baskets of his home-cooked favorites. Sharif Jr., her older son, will walk across the stage at Duke Medical School to be hooded as a doctor and see the empty seat in the audience where Jen should have been, but for her mistakes. Rather than stand in the center of the enormous group of Tongan and Black relatives singing their blessings on their young doctor, Jen will only hear about this day from a federal prison. I mean... And again, I know people are going to argue this is all her fault, and she does, in this memorandum, there is an admission that this is her fault, but it is a factor to consider in sentencing. So they're taking the shot. Yeah, so the government distinguished that case. How did you pronounce that? It's it's spelled B-L-A-Z-C-Z-A-K. Man, I think that's how it's spelled. I I just went for it. I said Blazasak. I'm dyslexic, so I'm just going to... It's probably like Bladshack or something. Those letters are just swimming. So the government distinguished this case by saying that defendant's wife in that case suffered from a serious degenerative illness, while the defendant's husband appears to suffer from no malady. The defendant's wife, in the case that Jen Shaw cited, suffered from a serious degenerative illness, while Jen Shaw's husband, according to the government, appears to suffer from nothing. They point out that in the case that Jen Shaw cited that the defendant had a young son in need of care, while Jen Shaw's children are essentially grown. I kind of was thinking that, too, while you were reading it. I was thinking about Teresa and her four very young children and how that's a lot different. They didn't show much on the show about her being like a doting mom and her scenes with her kids were very, you I know. I think they did. I think she I think that was the most human she was on the show was when she was around her kids. I mean, the scene I when she's she trying was. to play basketball with the one son, he cannot stand it and doesn't want to be there. She was. Yeah. When she, she was well, talking about decorating one of them's lockers, Sharif was like, oh, my God, no, don't do that. He'll hate that. Yeah. And then I just I'm trying to imagine I'm trying to remember back from the show where it showed her interacting with her kids. I don't think that's a fair. I don't think it's fair to judge by what we've seen on the show. Because that's true. It's probably they probably don't want to be on camera. That's I fair. Mean, they're they're older. One's in medical school. He's probably not around. And then, like I mentioned earlier, when we were talking about all the family statements and her as a mother and stuff. I said, I wish we would have seen more of this on the yeah. show. Yeah. I think it was intentional that they didn't want to show that part of Jen on the show, maybe herself or her producers. And they wanted her to be the over-the-top drama, money, you know, all of that. And they didn't show her as a devoted mother and family member. So I'm just playing devil's advocate. And I think they do a really good job in this memorandum of tugging at the heartstrings and being like, Look at what she's going to miss. And I get it. I get it. This is her own doing. And they, they say that in the memorandum. But it's, she, gets, she gets to make the argument to yeah. get a reduced sentence. You're making very fair points. <laughs> what? No, I mean, I'm not even her counsel. And I'm like diving into this role of pretend counsel. But I just feel like she, she's, she deserves to make the arguments. Moving on. So on deterrence, so it says this is going to go to specific and general deterrence. The argument made here is Jen has spent the last several years of her life unwittingly proving to this court that she will not reoffend. She not only left the telemarketing industry, but she put herself onto the world stage in a completely different arena. 
In the unique fishbowl of, re- of reality television, the world has watched her every move, seen the truth behind Jen, flaws, family fights, and all. And thus the world knows that Jen has a, has completely broken from her old life. Pause. I don't know if we know that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. As a very well-recognized television personality whose prosecution has been the centerpiece of nearly every newspaper and tabloid since March 2021, there's absolutely zero chance that Jen could anonymously slip back into the criminal schemes of the telemarketing world. Or, for that matter, there is zero chance that Jen will ever do anything unnoticed by the press and public ever again. The PSR also recognizes that Jen's likelihood to reoffend is low. And the PSR is the pre-sentencing report. There, thus, there is no need for specific deterrence in this case, as Jen is extremely unlikely to be a repeat offender. In addition, this case has already cost Jen dearly. Jen, who desperately wanted to be the best mother in the world, has now been the cause of embarrassment, fear, and shame for her beloved sons. Jen would never do anything to risk more harm to her children. She knows the emotional and psychological toll that her sons have already been forced to pay. These are harms for which she will spend the rest of her life atoning. Next, she argues about COVID. And I haven't seen this. I mean, it wasn't in the Chrisley's memo, but they put in some statistics about how COVID is still alive and well. And it's pretty rampant in prisons. And uh, it's better for her not to be in there (laughs) to avoid more spread. They're like, obviously, if you have more people in the prison, it's going to spread more. So... There's that argument. So next is on restitution. And this is an argument that they made in the Chrisley sentencing memorandum about the ability to make money out of jail. So this says Jen will pay restitution faster outside of jail than in jail. While Jen is jointly and severally severally liable for this amount with Stuart Smith, it is indisputable that once she has returned to society, Jen will be better positioned to be able to earn the funds to rectify this debt. This is my favorite part of this entire memorandum, because then in a footnote, they say, as the government and Smith well know, Smith, so Stu, has a storied history of failed businesses, enormous personal debt, and very limited earning potential. <laughs> what? So, wait, she's so like... in normal people language, what is being argued here is that Jen has a better shot of making restitution the less amount of time she's in jail, because as soon as she comes out she can go on and make some money. Whereas Stu, because they're jointly and severally liable for the restitution here, they're arguing, you all know Stu, he's got failed businesses, he's got debt, he can't make any money. So Jen has to be the one to make the money. It is just such a beautiful footnote. Someone in our Patreon, when we posted the memorandum, also recognized this footnote. And yeah, it's it's just brilliant. (laughs) I have no words. Yeah. I mean, the Chrisleys made this argument, but this is as if this is as if like Julie was like, well, we all know the world hates Todd. So let me out. I'm the one who can keep making money. It's just it's a great argument. Okay, And then another argument that Jen Shaw makes is due to her celebrity status, which she has used to significantly advance the rights of marginalized and disenfranchised communities. Jen is uniquely positioned to benefit society. I won't read all of this. This is just one paragraph. It says, From a young age, Jen took on the role of Fahu and the responsibility of being a role model, 
That directive has become her personal mission, and the moment Jen got the spotlight of the world stage on her, she redirected that light onto those who have been left in the dark for their race, religion, and sexual orientation or beliefs. Often the only voice speaking out for the rights of disenfranchised Utah, Utahans? Utahans? I, guess I don't know. Utah. <laughs> Utahans? Jen has earned a place as a champion for the marginalized. Her fans and followers look to Jen to speak out for them, defend them, and encourage them to swim harder when the tides of injustice pull them under. But then they go on to list some of the organizations that she's been involved in and how she's helped. It's fairly long, a lot I didn't know about, but I'm not going to read them all for the benefit of the length of this episode. Wait, so she's saying she's donated to charitable organizations or like what? No, like volunteered donations. She's helped fans, things like that. Okay. She sits on some boards. I doubt she still sits on those boards. I don't know. So next is the public interest, and it says, At a cost in today's dollars of approximately $44,000 per year, imprisoning Jen would cost at least $265,000 for the six-year sentence recommended by the probation department. Spending that much money to incarcerate Jen makes no sense at all. Jen will remain a financial burden throughout her incarceration and will have lost six years' time of which she could have been working to make payments towards restitution. So this is another kind of financial argument based on crunching the numbers. They're saying it's expensive to incarcerate someone and Jen has restitution to make up. She's better at making that money outside of prison and keeping her in is just going to cost everyone more. And finally, this is the end of the memorandum. So that's the end of all her arguments. She again makes the plea for 36 months in prison and says that she would like to be incarcerated at FPC Bryan facility in Bryan, Texas. I looked it up. The federal prison camp Bryan is a minimum security United States federal prison for female inmates in Texas. It is operated by the Federal Bureau of Prisons, a division of the United States Department of Justice. FBC Bryan is located 95 miles northwest of Houston. And that is the end of her memorandum. But before we move on, you want to say something? I just, I don't know if she knows what's been going on with the prisons in Texas, but it's not great. A lot of them have not had air conditioning in the summer in Texas. So I don't, I don't know, I'm, I'm confused as to why she picked Texas, but I don't know. And then she had exhibits attached to her memorandum. She had exhibits A through N. Exhibit A were letters from friends and family. She had 30 letters submitted from friends and family. Sharif Sr. and Jr. both submitted letters. I believe her younger son did as well, but it is completely redacted. I wanted to note that there are some people on there that we've seen on the show who submitted letters. I, uh took to some friends to remind me of who these people are. So one was Marilo Bueno. And I was like, isn't that the guy who was accused of stealing the handbag from Meredith Mark's store? Oh. And my friends confirmed yes. I don't know if that's true. Just throwing that out there. He's one of the people that wrote a letter on behalf of Jen. And then there were some others that were other assistants of Jen Shaw. So yeah, just thought that was interesting. Exhibit B are photographs of Jennifer Shaw and family, and those are all completely redacted or were filed under seal, so we can't see what the photos are. But this is, again, to humanize her and show her 
as Jen the person and not Jen the criminal. Jen also submitted a statement, and I'm curious to see. She probably will testify at her sentencing hearing, but it's four pages, and it talks about how she got involved in the situation. Again, this is all heavily redacted, so I'm assuming it's about whatever happened in New York, what happened in her life to get her to this point. It mentions her father's death, which hit her very hard. At the end of this, she says, My poor judgment and bad business associations caused innocent people to lose their money and be victimized by investing in poorly structured businesses and products that I influenced or controlled. For that, I am genuinely sorry, and I will work the rest of my life to make it right. Then the rest of the exhibits are the statistics that I read from, so the proof for those statistics, and then some cases. So that's the end of Jen's. And I'm going to turn to Angela. So what say you, government? Okay, now y'all can go directly to part two, which has already been released, and listen to the government's arguments. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. The Bravo Docket is part of the ACAST Creator Network.